Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Politics is the entertainment branch of industry, Frank Zappa once quipped. Well, having seen this week's Republican primary debate, the Trump interview, the reports, the arrests, the mugshots, the shouting, I would go as far as to specify that the entertainment on this instance is theatre of the absurd. My guest today is no stranger to the absurd, having followed US politics closely for the last two decades. She's an attorney, ABC News contributor and senior editor at The Dispatch. She has worked on three presidential campaigns and in the Justice Department during the Trump administration. Welcome back to the bunker, Sarah Isger. Thanks for having me. So, Sarah, where to start? <laughs> Indeed. Um, <laughs> let's look at the debate first and then we'll go on to the interview. Although I, I feel that to call it a debate elevates it by several notches. Did any of the candidates impress you? So we have to start, I think, with almost a more fundamental question, which is, was anything in that debate able to change the reality on the ground? So for instance, you had eight candidates on the stage, and yes, I think several of them actually exceeded expectations. Um, I think Vice President Mike Pence actually showed some, you know, fire in the belly that we hadn't seen from him before. You had Nikki Haley shining sort of as a voice of both reason and policy soundness. And look, Vivek Ramaswamy, it was a little bit of a Rorschach test of whether, like, is he a huge dick or is he like a really, really huge dick, but I kind of like it. Um, and that, you know, having the conversation revolve around him as a relative unknown is sure to give him a real bump in the polls because, you know, he started out with relatively low name ID as someone who um, nobody had ever heard of six months ago. Uh, so, yes, but here's the problem. All of these guys are down by 40 points. And so because nobody had a singular standout, there was no game changer in this debate. And by the way, maybe there couldn't have been. It really felt like a debate where the prize is second place. And mm, second mm. place in a GOP nominating convention is er, uh, nothing? Nothing, yeah. Um, did any of the candidates depress you more than you expected? Ron DeSantis certainly came in with the most to lose. He was in that number two slot, but his numbers had been drooping and drifting lately. And if you'd followed Ron DeSantis's career, you'd know that debates aren't his strong suit to begin with. And so he came in with sort of high expectations that were probably a little unfair given he's not a particularly good debater. And yeah, he did about as well as you'd think, which is not that great of a debater. And I feel like he came off as someone who was trying his best and he wasn't going to capture the moment. I think the real problem for Ron DeSantis is if he had been 10 points ahead of some of the rest of the field, like he had been three months ago, four months ago, maybe wouldn't have changed a lot for him. But unfortunately, I think because he was drooping down really within the margin of error against some of these other candidates, I doubt he holds on to that number two slot in the next polls that we see. Mm. As, as you said, Vivek Ramaswamy um, sort of made a name for himself last night. <laughs> what that name means? <laughs> but he, Yeah, because he did so by willing basically to take pretty much the most extreme batshit position on every single issue. And so, yes, okay, so, I mean, is that a real political strategy or is that the strategy employed by a sort of a apprentice contestant that wants to get lots of TV work afterwards? 
So exactly. I mean, it was funny that he was accusing other people of auditioning for cable news host slots when the person who sounded the most like someone who wants to host (laughs) a cable news program was Vivek. Um, I think that, again, you go into this asking what the metric of success is. If you're a guy who had zero name ID in the country and sort of no business running for president in the first place, people talking about you is success. Mm. Um, And that's the measure of success. He had a good first hour. He came off as someone in command of the stage, maybe the only person who was having fun up there. And that first hour, by the way, is when most of the eyeballs tune into this debate. The second hour can feel like a bit of a, you know, slog, if you will. In that second hour, though, the shtick kind of revealed itself as shallow. He's not Donald Trump. He didn't have a next thing to say, kind of repeated itself. In the meantime, that's when you saw, I think, Nikki Haley really shine in that second hour Mm -hmm. as someone who did have more to say, was in command of the facts and the issues, could call Vivek out on some of the things he was saying that made no sense. But it's all about sort of which debate you watched, the first debate, you know, the first hour or the second (laughs) hour. Um, And I think we'll see that show up in how people respond. I I think I agree with you about Nikki Haley. I I mean, I I was making some notes while I was watching it at some ungodly hour over here. Um, (laughs) And and I thought, actually, she probably made the best use of the format yeah. to land punches on everyone, to really put her agenda across very, very clearly. Um, is she someone that might emerge, actually, into a, an at least a creditable second place? So here's how I think the campaigns are thinking about this at this point. This is not 2016 where they're all waiting for someone else to take down Donald Trump. You know, the belling the cat problem. Everyone wants Mm -hmm. another mouse to go bell the cat and get eaten so that they can be there. You know, 2016 was all about being the last person standing against Donald Trump. And then when it's a one-on-one race, I'll take out Donald Trump. Of course, that ended up not happening. I don't think that's how the campaigns are thinking about it this time. And in some ways, how they think about it is far more depressing. What they see is reality. You know, Donald Trump's up by 40 points in some polls on everyone else. And nothing that's going to happen in the debate, nothing that any these candidates are going to say are going to change that reality. It's not going to suddenly move Donald Trump from 40 points to 20 points because, you know, Nikki Haley said something very clever at a debate. So they're sort of acknowledging that something external has to happen to Donald Trump, whatever that may be. But that game-changing moment isn't going to come from the campaigns. So in that sense, they're acknowledging that none of this matters. They are all vying for number two right now. Mm. But they're also saying, yeah, but if something does happen and that external event happens, then the number two slot really matters. And so to answer your question, No, I don't think Nikki Haley can overtake Donald Trump, even if her performance gets better. Because the one thing that I think Nikki Haley showed was that she's going to be able to repeat that performance. That wasn't luck, you know, that you actually saw skill. She's experienced. Yeah. But, you know, if, you know, an asteroid hits Donald Trump, then we're talking about the number two being the Republican frontrunner. Sure. Then I think we're in a totally different ball game. And I think we almost start from scratch is the problem. Mm, But this mm. is then good practice, if you will, for a Nikki Haley or, you know, we didn't hear much from Tim Scott last night. But interesting thing about Tim Scott is when you look at favorability numbers, who Republican primary voters like the most, Tim Scott is far and away the most liked politician on that stage. 
They just don't say they're going to vote for him. Let's get into the sort of meat of it a little bit. Um, Fairly near the start, the candidates were asked about climate change. And, And they all either denied or equivocated to an extent. I saw quite extensive polling on this recently that shows roughly two-thirds of Americans consider climate change an existential threat. And that includes about a quarter of Republican voters. Is there a danger that in a rush to appeal to the sort of the hardcore party base, the GOP ends up putting off floating voters that it absolutely needs to win? We can take this way out of the climate change question. And this is always the problem with primaries versus generals. You know, Mm. Jeb Bush said it in 2016, I'm not going to win the primary by losing the general, meaning exactly what you said. But specifically on the climate change question, I think the Republican fight about this is a little more nuanced than you think. It's less nuanced for some of the candidates, I will fully grant you. I mean, again, Vivek Ramaswamy saying climate change is a hoax. Of course, the DeSantis team pointing out a video from, I I think it was maybe five months ago, with Vivek Ramaswamy absolutely saying climate change is really important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So look, that's sort of the the clownish part of this. But if you want to get into like the actual policy substance where I think the Republican Party elites are, you know, office holders, et cetera, they're not really interested in whether climate change is real or not real. Like they think obviously the climate is changing. The two questions are, A, is it human caused? And what I think Republican Party is mostly centered around is that it doesn't matter because if the climate's changing, um, we don't really need to place blame so much as find a solution. Okay. Hmm. But then the problem with the solution is that America acting alone doesn't do much to fix the problem. When you have China, for instance, and India and developing countries, you know, arguing somewhat persuasively, one might say, that America got 200 years to pollute and they got to have a middle class and all of these rich people. And now it's our turn. We're going to be developing nations and we're going to build a middle class. And yes, that's going to take fossil fuels to do it. So how do you tell China and India that they don't get to have their industrial revolution because we already did it and ruined the planet? Uh, And so why should America then suffer economically, people out of jobs, if the actual problem with the climate is going to continue apace. And that's where I think that intra-party actual policy dispute is right now. I also found it very interesting to observe responses on social issues, exemplified by the section on abortion, I think. I remember a time when there was space in the Republican Party for people who were economically very right-wing, you know, fiscal hogs, but socially more more liberal. Is there that space now? Who represents that part of the Republican Party who want low taxes, small state, less intervention, but also not a, a, a regression of LGBT rights or women's rights or equality? Yeah, no, those people don't have a political party anymore. And in fairness, they were somewhat split between the Republican and Democratic Party. They they were more likely to vote Republican, but not universally. They're quasi-libertarian, not in the like Ayn Rand, there shouldn't be fire station type stuff, but like yeah. what you're describing, economically conservative, socially liberal, and then people were having to pick which one was sort of more important to them 
all throughout. What I think is the best example of this is exactly what you started with, which is the abortion conversation, where you go back 30 years, there were tons of pro-life Democrats, blue-collar union-style workers. That's gone. There is now only one elected pro-life Democrat in all of Congress. On the Republican side, uh, you know, one of the largest political action committees was Republicans for Choice. I think they had $18 million in the 2000s or so. Mm-hmm. They shuttered their doors in 2018. They're, they'd like literally no longer exist. And so what you've seen is the two parties polarize around social issues more than economic issues, which is why when someone like Donald Trump comes in, there's an argument that Donald Trump won two elections, right? He first beat the Republican Party, and then he beat the Democratic Party, mm. because the Republican Party no longer is the party of economic conservatism. Yeah. Yeah. There is no party for that anymore in the United States. And so you now are just fighting over these culture war issues, be it abortion or any other issue we're talking about. It's almost negative polarization, whatever you're for, I'm against. Sarah, I I may be romanticizing the past. We do tend to do that, don't we? Time takes the edges off. But even as recently as 2008 or 2012, I don't remember McCain, Romney, Santor and Backman just shouting at each other, talking over each other, all of them at the same time. I mean, obviously it happened in fits and bursts, but the way that debate degenerated. The the image projected to the electorate seemed to be one of squabbling toddlers. Is this the Trump effect? And and I was wondering, I was thinking that even though he wasn't there, he absolutely defined the debate, both in terms of content and in terms of tone. Well, one of the points I find most interesting about that is that when you went to the spin room afterwards, (laughs) the Trump surrogates, uh, Don Jr., his son, and Kimberly Guilfoyle, his, are they married? Fiance, girlfriend, whatever, his person, they were boosting Vivek. (laughs) As in, Mm. they saw Vivek as a stalking horse for their father. I mentioned that because you want to talk about setting the tone and why it devolved into squabbling so many times. Vivek was in every single one of those exchanges where people were just talking over each other. So, yeah, look. Did did the Republican Party put its best foot forward yesterday? No, I don't think anyone's arguing that. (laughs) But again, it's sort of this Schrodinger's cat problem. We don't even really know whether this debate will matter at all, because if they're just fighting over number two, eh. Leaving the content aside for a moment, it was a Trumpian debate, whether he was there or not. Did he make the right choice by declining the debate? Uh, it seemed to me that he was really vindicated. So there's two reasons to think about Donald Trump declining the debate. One, of course, is that he's 40 points up. And when you're that far up, like, why? Just like, yeah. give me any reason to show up. It's all downside, right? Yeah. I mean, anything that's not, you know, being comfy in your slippers is downside. But there's another reason too, which is, It'd be one thing if you're 40 points up, but you think your support might be a little soft and you're having trouble maintaining the spotlight. And so you're worried that one of these candidates could really take the ball and run down the field with it. And there's no defenders on your side. But Donald Trump doesn't have that problem. 
Why? Every single news cycle for the last three months has been about Mm. Donald Trump and his Mm. legal Mm. problems. None of these other candidates have been able to break through at all. They have this debate. Um, If you noticed, I think, I can't count, 12 of the defendants in the Georgia criminal indictment surrendered in uh, Fulton County, Georgia, had their mugshots taken um, the, the day of or the day before the debate. Not Donald Trump. He's having that done today, which is Thursday uh, evening here in this country. So any debate momentum that he thought anyone might get from last night, and I'm not sure anyone actually did, by the way, but if they had, he knew he was going to be able to stop it cold in its tracks with the first mugshot of a former U.S. president. (laughs) And it boggles the mind to imagine the amount of money that Donald Trump will have coming in with the merchandise they're about to sell with his mugshot on it. Hmm. Um, is the issue that he's so far ahead in the primaries, or is it actually that he's still level pegging or just behind Biden in the presidential voting intention polls? It just seems to me that if he started looking like he could lose, the reason I'm asking this is, is it really weird not to see the other candidates attacking him on the basis that he will lose as the election. I think it was mentioned like twice in the entire debate yesterday that there is a danger that if this goes wrong for Trump, he will lose the next election. And they didn't say it nearly as clearly as you just did. They would say, we need to make sure we have someone who can win the next election. And you were just supposed to know that that was a Mm. hit at Donald Trump. You know, they didn't use his name in doing that. I think you're exactly right. The biggest problem that any of these candidates have is that GOP primary voters aren't shopping right now because they don't need to. And then you get to Trump's legal problems and all of a sudden GOP primary voters or GOP general election voters, for that matter, start coming home, so to speak, what we would normally see a year out. You know, Mm, we're talking mm. Labor Day of 2024. We normally see Mm, voters, mm. quote unquote, come home. Well, they start coming home now. And so the polls tighten up. Donald Trump is within the margin of error against Biden in every poll, basically, and ahead in a few polls, again, still within the margin of error. Very few, I have to say. I I think that's been slightly overplayed. I, I, I looked at the polls for the last three months, and he is behind a lot more than he is ahead. Um, it's not by many, many points. And it, including the ones where he's up. It's all within the statistical margin of error. Mm-hmm. But don't forget, we have another margin of error here, which is the Electoral College. These are all yeah. national polls for the most part. And really, we have 50 elections here and, you know, six that matter uh, state by state. And so generally speaking, if Donald Trump is within the margin of error, he's going to win potentially because of that Electoral College math. But again, regardless, for Republican primary voters at least, if you ask them who is the strongest candidate against Joe Biden in a general election, Donald Trump's numbers have skyrocketed. So they're not Mm. looking for someone else. They're not worried about it. And when you ask them more questions, what they'll say is, look at Joe Biden. It is self-evident that he can't win re-election. Nobody's going to vote for that guy. Any Republican candidate can beat him. Now, I'm not saying that's accurate. I don't think it is. But if that's what they believe, then these other GOP candidates don't have the argument that they had eight months ago. Now, the interview itself, if I were being kind, I would describe it as (laughs) wide-ranging. 
if I were if I were being less kind, I would describe it as rambling, incoherent stream of consciousness. So it, it just felt like we were Hansel and Gretel in the forest of Donald Trump's mind with no breadcrumbs. Were there any takeaways? What were your takeaways? No, I mean, substantively, I don't think there was much there that mattered. I think that Donald Trump had this double hedge. He could maybe shave off a few viewers, lower the number of people watching the debate. That's a win Mm, for him. mm. But he also knew he had this backstop from the Fulton County mugshot white Bronco chase that's coming, uh, you know, where his motorcade is going to go down the freeway and it's going to be wall-to-wall news coverage and everyone's going to forget that there even was a debate. So the stakes were very low for Donald Trump to begin with in this interview. If there's something interesting about it to me, it is the company, right? So you have Tucker Carlson on X, formerly known as Twitter with Elon Musk. So it's sort of that triumvirate of Trump, Tucker and Elon, which, you know, I think we could look back in a few years and say, ah, that was something we should have taken more note of. That's such a weird relationship, right? Right. <laughs> Musk pretty much bought Twitter on the premise he could he could get Trump back on it. Trump is still not back on it, but now he's doing exclusive interviews for X, apparently friends with Carlson again, who said some pretty nasty things about Trump, but also calling X a strange little forum in the interview and disparaging electric cars as an aside. I mean, is it all theatre, do you think, or is it genuinely just three impulsive narcissist nuts just living a private little soap opera of their own? Why can't it be all of the above? Uh, <laughs> yes, it could be both. So you have to get into Trump's mindset a little bit here. And and I, I am far from an expert on the psychology of Donald Trump. But there's a couple things Donald Trump loves about what you just described. One, someone who didn't like him coming around to praise him. Hmm. So the fact that Tucker Carlson said something negative about him isn't a minus like you think it would be. It's the delta that brings Trump the joy. How much you didn't like him before and how many nice, crazy things you're going to say now. He actually, if you think about it, isn't that into lifetime sycophants? If you always love Donald Trump and you keep loving Donald Trump, that doesn't give him the hit that he wants. He wants to have won you over. So that's the Tucker Carlson piece. On the Elon Musk piece, again, it's almost the flip side of the same coin. He wants to insult you and test you and see if you'll still be there. And that's how I'm going to make sure he knows I'm the alpha in this relationship of alphas. I really like that. So yeah. I'm not a man, but like you know, like, no, but <laughs> yeah, no, but, but it makes perfect sense, right? There, there's no joy in beating our betters and gammas. There's joy in beating other alphas, and and that's what he gets off on. But I thought he looked quite tired and quite unwell, actually, quite unhealthy. It's been a rough summer. Like, I don't know when the last time you faced four criminal indictments was, but <laughs> it can be exhausting. <laughs> um, the, the last thing I wanted to touch on on the substance was, uh, uh, you know, about Biden's age. Mm. I thought this was the most flagrantly I have seen it weaponized. Um, 
millions of older people vote Republican. Is making fun of old age actually a wise strategy? I found it quite offensive to hear of infirmity that is quite natural with age. What I think you'll hear from Republicans is that they'll actually use exactly what you just said, but they see it in a totally different way, which is, yeah, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the same age. And look at the difference. This isn't about Mm. age. This is about mental acuity. Donald Trump has it. Joe Biden does it. It's not ageism. It's senilityism. And yeah, like Mm. that's their argument for it. And in that sense, Donald Trump really helps their argument because they're picking someone else who's also old. Also, though look at the Democratic polling on this. I will say that when you talk to reporters who've covered Joe Biden for 30 years, they'll tell you that it's just who he is. Yeah, um, yeah. But look, certainly there are some things that are showing uh, maybe losing a step. Uh, you know, yeah. f- for instance, this Hawaii debacle where Joe Biden is asked about what he would say uh, about the fires in Hawaii that have killed hundreds of people. And instead of like, he didn't have anything to say and just ignoring the question or saying just anything empathetic, hearts and, you know, uh, thoughts and prayers. Any, he said, no comment. That's a weird thing to yeah, say yeah, when you've yeah. got hundreds of your countrymen who burn to death. Mm. Um, and so pointing to things like that, of like, he's just not quite yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you're going to hear so much more about it because for a lot of, again, people on both sides of the aisle, They think they're electing Kamala Harris as president, whether Joe Biden makes it to the election after the election. Not many people think he makes it six years from now. Yes. I I mean, I I, I would argue that mental health is a is a central issue of the coming election. And that on one side, you have you have someone who is maybe beginning to uh, to not be as sharp as they once were, but on the other side, you have someone who is actively sort of pathologically <laughs> psychotic. But pick your avatar. I, I'm going to ask you one final question. Candidates were asked whether they would still support Trump as a nominee if he were criminally convicted, and all but two people put up their hands to say yes. You've been involved with Republican politics for a long time, but you are also a small C conservative and you are also a lawyer. How does that make you feel? It was the wave where like four candidates raised their hand right away and then two of the candidates kind of looked around and Mm, were like, oh, mm. I guess I'll raise my hand too. I mean, it was a weird, weird moment on the stage. Um, But don't forget the RNC said that you had to sign a pledge in order to get on that stage in the first place, that you would support the eventual nominee no matter what. So the fact that any candidates were on that stage who didn't raise their hand actually shows a real weakness in the Republican National Committee to be able to scare these candidates at all. Um, You know, there were other candidates who, for instance, made the cutoff in terms of uh, number of donors and weren't allowed on the stage because they said they wouldn't sign that pledge. But to your more like first principles question, how does it make um, one feel uh, deeply concerned? If one political party is now simply captured uh, by loyalty to a person, and that that person might win the White House, what does that mean for the future of the American experiment? And I say this knowing I'm talking to a Brit, and maybe y'all don't feel that invested in uh, your little rebellious colonies over here. 
But what we're doing as an experiment that has been ongoing for 247 years in self-government, in process over outcome, in majority rule except for minority rights, in a written constitution, all of that, it sounds overly dramatic, but all of that very much feels like it's on the ballot in 2024. Um, well, you're actually speaking to a Greek, so um, <laughs> I, I, I feel per. I feel personally very, very invested in the basic principles of democracy. Um, Sarah Isgore, thank you so much for this uh, update. We will continue watching breathlessly, and I hope we chat again soon. Thank you. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of Donald Trump from that incisive interview. We built a thing called the Panama Canal. We lost 35,000 people to the mosquito, malaria. We lost 35,000 people. We lost 35,000 people. Because of the mosquito, vicious. They had to build under nets. It was one of the true great wonders of the world. As he said, one of the nine wonders of the world. No, no, it was one of the seven. It happened a little while ago. You know, nine wonders of the world. You could make nine wonders. He would have been better off if he stuck with the nine and just said, yeah, I think it's nine. But this is one of the true seven wonders of the world. This is Alexandreo in the bunker saying, good luck, America. <laughs> your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andre and produced by Chris Jones. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieber, and our art is by Jim Parrott. Social media by Jess Harpin and our music is by Kenny Dickinson. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.